Hello and welcome back to Best Forgotten Movies, the podcast all about the films that time forgot. I'm Gareth Green and joining me as always is my full-time co-host and part-time Miss Universe, the one, the only, Andrew Phillips. Boop boop, P2. <laughs> and today we're preparing our radiation suits for Ridley Scott's Black Rain. Will Scott's film emerge from a storm of bullets victorious or should it lose its head? All that and more to come, but first, cue the trailer. A New York City cop... On the trail of a killer. From the back alleys of Manhattan. Our victims are certainly Yakuza. To the streets of Japan. Because of your negligence, a man we've wanted for a long time has been lost. Come on, we'll take some of the heat for this, but we're not taking the wrath. You see, there's a war going on here between Sato and an old-time boss named Sugai. And they don't take prisoners. So where's your boss? This isn't New York. We have rules here. I've seen Sato's work, okay? He ain't following your program. You are foreigners. Nothing more than interested observers. No one's gonna help a Kaijin. Kaijin. You're a barbarian, a foreigner. Me and you. More you. Try to work like a Japanese. Now, this is good. This ain't money. You got a counterfeiting war going on, guys. You are civilians here. It is illegal for you to carry a gun. <laughs> Something tells me we should cut our losses and let the locals handle it around here. I can't go back without them, Charlie. You have no part in this. I am the solution to your problems. Well, it's not over yet. Here I am, Nick! You can get him, boss. You and me. Michael Douglas. Black Rain. Michael Douglas's mullet stars as Nick Conklin, a crooked cop on a downward spiral who is tasked with escorting a Yakuza mob boss back to Japan after witnessing a grisly murder. But the stakes are raised when the villain escapes his clutches and it is left to Nick and his partner Charlie to hunt him down in a strange city of neon lights and deadly shadows. Gun battles, sword fights and 80s power ballads follow in a film that's cheesier than a stinking bishop. So, Andy, is this the first time you've duked it out with Ridley Scott's Black Rain? No, I think the first time I watched it was with you yeah, last yeah. year. Yeah, very recently, actually. Yeah, yeah last we just, year. You got it on Blu-ray, didn't we? We just watched it, and we were like, oh, this is really good. Yeah, we are both big fans of Ridley Scott, actually. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but for the two of us, this was actually a blank spot in our appreciation of Ridley Scott. We have never actually seen this film before then. Yeah, I think there's a couple of blank spots in Ridley Scott's filmography. There's, uh, there's a couple that we'll probably end up doing at some point on Best Forgotten Movies. Yeah, I'm thinking of like 1492, maybe Matchstick Man as well. And Someone to Watch Over Me. Yep. The yep. one he did just prior to this one. Yeah, there are a couple of films of his that I haven't seen, but I would say by and large he is my favourite living director, or at least one of them. Steven yeah. Spielberg yeah. is up there as well, obviously. Mm-hmm. One of my earliest memories of Black Rain is the cover of it in the video shop. Yeah, 
I've always remember that one. Yeah, it's Michael Douglas sat on a bike with his arms crossed and sunglasses on, mullet in full flow, just staring directly at the camera. Gives you no indication of the content inside. <laughs> no, not at all. <laughs> um, again, it's just sold off the back of Michael Douglas with a mullet. Yeah. Like I said, this is the age of star power when an actor with his name above the title could just sell a film. This is your Stallone's. Your Schwarzenegger's. What else would have had at the time? Tom Cruise was just on the yeah, rise. he was. At Top Gun. Mm-hmm. So this was really the age of star power, and these are the kind of films that are powered by the star themselves. You got it with Arnold Schwarzenegger with Total Recall and True Lies. Yeah. And here it happens again, where Michael Douglas is the spearhead of this production, not Ridley Scott. Ridley Scott is the director for hire on this one. Everything comes from Michael Douglas. This is a Michael Douglas production to me people seem to forget that when we talk about star vehicles in terms of films these are the films that we're actually referring to the ones that have been created by actors who have actually got everything together the writers together this is back in a day where every star would have an exec producer credit yeah but yeah it's, it's strange to think of that poster now with just michael douglas on the front of it when you'd be very hard pressed to come across a poster that has less than seven or eight people on the front of it these days yeah yeah. Like I said, we are in the age of the cinematic universe. Yeah, yeah, the, the age of the brand. And we've just come out of the age of the series. With your Lord of the Rings and Harry Potters and whatnot. Yeah, and then before that was the age of I don't know what. So Black Rain does feel like a throwback to a simpler time. I mean, it does, it does come yeah. from a simpler time. To watch it now, it does feel a little out of place, but I, I, I like what it signifies. I like the kind of level of filmmaking the era of filmmaking that it comes from yeah and it's interesting to note that in the making of documentary michael douglas comments on how much more creative freedom they had in the late 70s and and 80s when he was making those kinds of films when he was doing romancing the stone and wall street and fatal attraction the amount of freedom you would have had uh, it felt like it seems that in the 90s things were starting to get more constricted yeah and they have really come to a head recently i know that there are reports out about marvel's creative committee at the moment but yeah blockbuster filmmaking is at a completely different level now in mm. terms of how many cooks there are around the pot and it, it seems to be strangling film yeah well you only have to look at some of the more modern ridley scott films to see that in yeah. terms of exodus and kingdom of heaven and even prometheus where that's happened yeah you do get the sense that with prometheus there was um, a certain contractual obligation to keep the film under two hours yeah and unfortunately that resulted in a film that was half-baked more so than it should have been i think there's a much better film in there somewhere definitely i like some of the ideas he's dealing with but they don't come to fruition i think some of it's been lost in that edit yeah but anyway, back to Black Rain. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think we've provided just a little bit of context as to when this film was made, but whereabouts does it fall in Ridley Scott's filmography? This is an interesting one because he'd done his trilogy of sci-fi fantasy films. He'd done, um, done, two, yeah, done two sci-fis in Alien and Blade Runner and then gone on to do the fantasy film Legend. And both Blade Runner and Legend had failed quite spectacularly at the box office. So he wasn't one of these directors at the time that was known for doing commercially successful films bar Alien. And even um, Someone to Watch Over Me didn't do particularly well at the time. And this was during his period of finding his feet doing other types of projects. So he was more astute at this point in the late 80s for doing director for hire jobs or doing things that wouldn't be classed as typical for him. He's wanting to stretch his wings a little bit more. And Black Rain is a director for hire job for Ridley Scott. It is, 
but it bears a lot of his hallmarks. Yes, it does. I think the film that he made after Black Rain, Thelma and Louise, really broke him away from his 80s self. Yeah, it does feel like a transformative film, Thelma and Louise, that is, uh, for Ridley Scott. Mm. And I think Gladiator did it 10 years after that. Yeah, it seems that every decade or so, he does have this kind of film that redefines who he is as yeah. a filmmaker. And that's what I like about him, because if you follow his career from its very um, beginning, he does have these transformative periods where he completely changes his style and his look and his sound and becomes something else. And he challenges himself in different ways. Yeah, I think even to a lesser extent, Prometheus is one of those films, even in terms of his team and yeah. the tone and style of things he's going for. Because since Prometheus, he's been using that same team straight through to The Martian. Yeah. Yeah. And he's using all these new technologies. And even at the tender age of 77, 78, <laughs> he's still challenging himself on all these different technical levels. He's not willing to rest as a director. And that's what I love about him. Yeah, I mean, no matter what you can say about his films, and I know there are quite a few people that are very sniffy about Ridley Scott films. Yeah. You can't deny that he's always trying to push things. He might get lost sometimes, but you can't deny his enthusiasm for film. No. He's no fucking Brett Ratner. <laughs> that's for sure. Yeah, so Black Rain comes from an era of the Ridley Scott filmography where critics regarded him as a bit of a dud, really. And although films like Blade Runner have gone on to be redefined as being a masterpiece, and rightfully so, mm. even that wasn't well received by critics um, of the era. Even Alien had its uh, people that was calling it just utter trash. I always think that Ridley Scott is one of these directors that was ahead of the time. Mm. And I actually think Black Rain is somewhat ahead of its time in the way that it approaches the Japanese culture from an American standpoint. I mean, and of course, it takes an Englishman to do that. It takes an outsider to come in and comment on it. And that seems to draw criticism for Black Rain. I'm sure we'll get into it later, but I actually think some of that criticism is misplaced. Mm. And as we discuss the film and the way that it approaches Japanese characters, I guess we'll start to strip away those criticisms. Yeah. So this was a film that was developed by Michael Douglas and then brought to Ridley Scott. So it started with the writer Craig Bolotin. He was traveling in Japan at the time and then came across, I think there was quite a long convoy of old American cars, like vintage cars coming down the street. And he asked someone what all this was. And someone said, this is the Yakuza. And he sort of was very intrigued by all this. So he did some research and then ended up deciding that he wanted to do a film about an American cop going over to Japan and getting involved with the Yakuza. And that is the spark that set everything else in motion. And this was developed in-house with Michael Douglas and producers that he'd worked with before on Fatal Attraction. And it was this team that approached Ridley Scott to produce this film. Originally, they had Paul Verhoeven on board which would have been an interesting one. Yeah, it would have been definitely slightly different in terms of the ultraviolence. Yeah, he got his chance later. They worked with him later on Basic Instinct. So uh, that's how that came to be. But yeah, I think Ridley Scott was probably a more appropriate fit for this one, I think. Yeah, I do as well. I think it could have been a little bit overkill in Paul Verhoeven's hands, although I still would have loved to have seen that version of the film. Yeah, yeah. I think it would have been funnier. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it definitely would have had more of a satiric edge. But this was during the time when Michael Douglas was at his peak. He'd won the Oscar for Wall Street two years previously, and he was really wanting to stretch himself as an actor in different roles. And he was really attracted to the idea of this Nick Conklin character being very morally in a grey area. Yeah, he's morally ambiguous. Yeah, 
he was wanting to explore other things that dealt with corruption in society. So this was definitely something that interested him. And because the producers had a good relationship with Paramount, who financed the film, this film had a very quick production period. It was fast-tracked on top of Michael Douglas and the production team. Well, they've got to get one of those star vehicles out there, haven't they? Oh, yeah. That's the thing. It needs to keep rolling. Mm-hmm. Uh, it needs to keep that star vehicle moving or else it will slow down and stop. Yeah. And I guess that's why a lot of these films back in the 80s were fast-tracked with these stars in mind. They just never stopped working. No, they didn't, no. So I guess we've got to ask, is Black Rain really deserving of being labelled a slump film for Ridley Scott? And I don't think either of us really believe that, but I guess we've got to get into the film to really uh discuss what we think of black rain mm, yeah so where to begin andy is black rain a film that you enjoyed yeah i mean when we watched it i was pleasantly surprised because i didn't know what to expect i'd heard that it had sort of a middling reception but then when i actually got to see it i was like oh why has this film been left behind in the swathe of ridley scott's more recent films especially after gladiator i feel that a lot of the films he made in between that and Blade Runner were just washed away. And there's there's so much wealth to be had in between those two films. Yeah, I mean, you've got little hidden classics like White Squall in there Mm. that just don't get enough appreciation. And Black Rain falls into that category as as well. It just disappeared from view. Mm. And I do seem to think that a lot of people in the general audiences out there believe that Ridley Scott's career started with Gladiator. Yeah. um, Which is strange to me. It's very strange to me. I mean, he has made a lot more films since Gladiator than he did beforehand. It's actually interesting to look at his filmography now, and Gladiator's right in the middle of it all. It's kind of weird that, that considering is it's only like 15 years since Gladiator came out, but he's made pretty much a film a year, if not two films a year, since then. He's very much of the same mold as Steven Spielberg in the way that he's actually sped up the older he's got. Mm. Yeah. Um, I actually would say that it's been forgotten to the point that I didn't know it was a Ridley Scott film. No, I never realised it was Ridley Scott. No. I'd seen the poster around so many times and gone, eh, looks all right. I'm not sure what it is. Looks like a cheesy 80s action flick. If I'd known it was Ridley Scott, I might have watched it already, but I didn't know it was. Me neither. And I think it's we're going back to that Star Vehicle thing again. Is um, I saw this as nothing more than a Michael Douglas film. I think this is because Ridley Scott's star was quite low at the time. He was known within the industry as being visionary director, but I think commercially he had no established track record at this point. Yeah. Therefore, there's not really any mention of Ridley Scott like these days where it's from director Ridley Scott, director of Gladiator, bloody blah, American Gangster, all yeah. this kind of stuff. There's no mention of that on the poster of Black Rain. And also, I think at this point in time, I don't think directors were as well advertised as they even are now or were in the 70s, we've kind of come round to selling films based on directors again. Not in terms of having films as creatively led by directors as we were in the 1970s, but I think with the advent of filmmakers like Christopher Nolan and you Steven Spielberg's coming back into the fray, I think films are much more marketed on directors' power than than they were in the 90s and the 80s. Yeah, do you remember when M. Night Shyamalan used to be a name? Yeah. Yeah, you'd be hard-pressed to see that on any trailers these days. Yeah, he's gone, but he's gone into 80s mode. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, one of the first things I noticed about Black Rain when I was watching it is that the cinematography, actually by Jan de Bon. Partially by Jan de Bon. Oh, partially. Oh, Right. So Do this tell is us an more. interesting one. Now, this goes into the difficulties they had in filming in Japan. Japan is a notoriously difficult place to make a film, and they commented on the making of documentary, even Japanese films have difficulty filming in their own country. And it's actually worth to note that 
most Japanese films are not set in the city, they're set outside in the country because it's much easier to film there. Making films in Japanese cities is hell. One, they're too expensive, and two, you seem to cause a lot of fuss whenever you're filming towns. I know that Ridley Scott had problems with pedestrians approaching him and um, challenging him for spending too long in a certain place. They just generally had problems with the bureaucracy. There was some sort of news article that was broadcast whilst they were making the film that was stating that they were exploiting the Japanese, something like that. And it basically meant that any doors that were open before they were about to film immediately closed. And places where they were told they could film for two days, they suddenly had five hours in. Yeah. So it became very difficult. And I think difficult for the original director of photography, who was Howard Atherton, he actually resigned from the film halfway through the Japanese sequences. So in the, all the Japanese sequences, half of them are Howard Atherton's and the other half are Jan de Bont's. And then they went to film back in New York and in Napa Valley and on the sound stages. So I'd say probably about two thirds of the film is Jan de Bont. The other third of the film is Howard Atherton. I do know that Jan de Bont did work on a lot of the heavy neon signed footage. Yeah. He had a very hard time trying to light the frame in the very short time that he had in order for the actors to be noticed and the characters to draw the attention of the audience towards them. And I do think that that's some of the best work in the film. I've no idea how much stuff is actually in the film of Howard Atherton's because there's no mention of him in the documentaries or the commentary. And on the film, he is just credited as additional photography. Ah. So I think there's something maybe slightly wrong somewhere where something bad happened and there's some relationships that got damaged. I'm yeah, thinking some bridges have been burned. Yeah, I'm thinking so. Basically, he started the film and didn't finish it. And Yanderbont saved the day. He doesn't save the day very often, does he? Not really. Yeah, no. Yanderbont, who has gone on to be a very accomplished director, <laughs> with such classics under his belt as Speed 2, Cruise Control. Uh, I mean, even a good Yanderbont film is Twister. And that's not even a good film. It's a great film. It's a. It's. It's not a good film. No. <laughs> <laughs> it's a great film. Yeah, I don't know. I, I kind of put Yanderbont in the same category as Yuri Harlins. He's another one of those directors that I those, think those has European a lot of, action directors. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. And he has a lot of passion for the job as well. Yeah. But I do know that Speed Two Cruise Control was actually based on a nightmare that he had. Um, which just tells you everything about the film. I think he's a better director of photography than his director of actors and film. For a while, he was the go-to action DOP. If you wanted your action films to look great, you'd go to Yanderbont. You do get some of these technical guys going into other areas sometimes, like, not quite working. I mean, another example is Stuart Baird yeah. and um, even Alexander Witt. As Alexander well. Witt recently made, um, well, he made Resident Evil Apocalypse. That classic film. Which is very strange because it's a film that doesn't actually look good. Even the action in the film is awful. And mm. he's actually a quite accomplished action director. Yeah. So why does it look so bad? I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> tangent, tangent, tangent. But yeah, because of the issues that they actually had filming in Japan, it forced them to make some very creative decisions when it came to locations. As the film actually went on, it climaxes with a house on a hill and a rice field, and it looks convincingly like Japanese countryside. Yeah, it's actually a redressed vineyard from Napa Valley, very near San Francisco, and it was shot in wintertime. So it's got all the frostiness and all the leaves have gone off the trees. And they used a lot of smoke machines to get that high altitude atmosphere going on. Yep. And it was so convincing that a lot of the Japanese actors on set were arguing about which region of Japan this was. <laughs> <laughs> so they did a really good job. 
I have never been to Japan. I've only seen it through the lens of a camera, but that convinced me. Yeah. I had no idea until I watched a making of documentary yeah. that it wasn't legitimately Japan. That's movie magic, Gaz. Movie magic at work. <laughs> I mean, there's even things like you get clever things where in the Charlie Death sequence, they start off in a Japanese mall, which is all with all the cathedral stuff going on. And then when they cut down the escalator, they're immediately in an overpass in LA that's just got Japanese signs on it. So that's a classic example of switching locations and switching continents. Yeah, they actually only had 45 minutes to shoot the footage in a Japanese mall. Originally, yes, they, did, yeah. they thought they were going to have hours. And in fact, they actually had 45 minutes, mm-hmm. so he did it within a couple of takes, really. Yeah, a lot of the Japanese stuff sounded like very much on-the-fly filmmaking. Yeah. Which is weird for Ridley Scott. And actually, this is a good chance for us to talk about Andy Garcia yes. in Black Rain, because he is one of the supporting characters in the film. He plays Charlie, who is um, Nick's partner. Yes. He's the young rogue hothead type of character. Mm. And this is one of my favourite elements in the film that they do that I think they tried to do more recently in Godzilla and fail spectacularly. But this is the idea Spoilers of... Spoilers for Godzilla yeah, coming up, by the but way, But this guys. is the idea of taking a fairly well-known actor or at least building up that character to be almost unequal to the leading man yeah. and then halfway through the film killing him off. Yeah, for the first half of the film you think that it's actually about the pair of them as characters. The relationship is actually between Nick and his Japanese counterpart, who is played by Kenta Kakora. Yeah, I like how the film plays around with some of these stock elements, because it is a buddy cop comedy. Sorry, it's not a comedy. Because <laughs> it's a buddy cop it, comedy, then. <laughs> it's a buddy cop comedy. And uh, it's, it's a buddy cop film, but not in the way you'd expect. And it's almost like a triangle. In, yeah. the, in the American scenes, it starts off as a buddy cop film. Then in the early Japanese sequences, it's a triangle where there's a resistance element in there. Yeah. And then when one of these is killed off, it becomes a buddy cop film again, but in a completely different way. Yeah. So I do like how they switch this around. It's at that point that Charlie is killed that Michael Douglas's character is truly isolated. And you get the feeling that he is actually lost. It's one of those films that if you're going into screenwriting 101, does have a proper full-on tipping point moment yeah it does and that's where the stakes are raised to become personal yeah it's a very screenwriter one-on-one moment in terms of raising the stakes and making them personal but it lands really well thanks to the work of andy garcia and michael douglas you do get the feeling that they are genuinely buddies and are having a good time together andy garcia actually brings a lot to the role he brings a lot of chemistry and screen presence in a very short supporting role really Yeah, uh, there's a lot that he contributed himself as an actor to the part. Apparently, when he approached the role originally, the the part was very much underwritten and he had to introduce quite a lot of quirks and personality to it. So some of the major elements of his character, for example, the matador elements with his jacket where he's leading on the bikes, which comes into play twice in the film, once at the beginning and once at the end of his role, were completely introduced by Andy Garcia. Also, the other major part of his character, which is the karaoke sequence where he's duetting with Matsumoto, that all came from him because previously there was another song. I think they were going to do, oh God, I think they were going to do You've Lost That Loving Feeling or something like that, a much slower song. Yeah. He had the idea to do a much more upbeat song and to actually have Matsumoto sing along with him. Originally, it was just going to be Andy Garcia that was going to sing. And he had the idea of making this character sing a more upbeat song One, to trick you what was going to go on immediately after this scene, but also to provide a connection point between him and Matsumoto. So 
when the character dies, there's much more of a connection, bond, or motivation for Matsumoto's character to avenge this character's death because he's touched him in some ways, he's connected with him some way. Yeah, I really like the way that Andy Garcia plays this role and to and to hear that he actually brought a lot of it to the character. It just leaves me to ask the question, why didn't Andy Garcia become the star that he really deserved to? Because he's never quite broke into the A-listers and yet he's got the screen presence and the personality and the charisma to really yeah. make it and he never quite did. Yeah, I think Godfather Part 3 stalled him somewhat. Which is strange because he's actually one of the best things about the Godfather yeah. Part 3. He brings a lot of that same anger and that kind of red hot rage that there is to james khan's character in the original godfather he has that edge to him yeah and he plays it really well and yet even so it still wasn't really recognized at the time yeah he's become a bit like ray liotta in that sense that when we were talking about revolver he's never quite got there yeah he's had a couple of defining roles early in his career but then slipped away and has never quite built that momentum back up again yeah it's the same way that there are there were a couple of meh 90s films that he did make like jennifer eight and desperate measures which are okay in their own right but really not deserving of his talent or time and they weren't exactly smash hits either no should have fired his agent yeah exactly <laughs> is it <laughs> But I'm always glad to see him in a supporting role these days, anytime he's on screen. I'm always glad to see him in a film, in a big film. Yeah. I'm glad to see him working because he, he he deserves it. Yeah. So this film actually does kill off one of its main characters halfway through, and it's a quite shocking scene as well. He's actually decapitated by the lead villain, who is... Uh, Sato. Who's actually played by Yusaku Matsuda. Wonderful actor. Great actor in this mm. film, and it's the only film that I've ever seen him in. And unfortunately... This was his last film. Yeah. So what happened was he'd auditioned for the role, got the part immediately. He was the only person they even considered. And again, I think against advice from his doctors, he had bladder cancer at the time, and he knew that it was going to aggravate his condition. He decided to do the film because he reasoned that in this way he would live on forever. Yeah. Which I think is a very admirable uh, thing to do, <laughs> considering... He's actually lost time in. of his life to give himself over to the art of this film. Yeah. Really. You're right, there is something admirable about that. Yeah. And it's a shame that it's a performance that doesn't get enough kudos these days. Because he was known for, at the time, to be a comedic actor. Yeah. Um, in Japan, he was very much like your Jim Carrey type character. Mm. And he does bring some of that bigness. Yes. So bigness, yeah. is that the word? He's uh, a very larger-than-life larger character, yeah. and he plays it very big, yeah. and it all lands. He's one of the most memorable parts of the film. Absolutely. I, I think if this film didn't have him in it, it would yeah. suffer. To be fair, I think all four main elements of the film, which is Michael Douglas, Andy Garcia, Ken Takakura, and Yasuka Matsuda, they all contribute equally to the quality of the film. One of the things I will say is the script by itself could be read as being quite camp yes. and uh, quite straightforward but all these players elevate it and Ridley Scott as well obviously his visuals are just excellent but they elevate it to a different status yeah I think this was originally intended to be a Michael Douglas star vehicle thriller but I think all the other elements at play and the kind of people they got involved made it much more than that it's got much more scope than just being a Michael Douglas vehicle. Yeah, there's more ambition behind it. Yes. And it's kind of telling that the writers haven't gone on to do much more beyond this particular film. Mm. Because I do think the work is on the back of those key players. Mm. The key work. The, the work that matters. This could have easily have become a Steven Seagal type starring film 
with just stock action characters. Not that the blueprint is bad at all, because no, no. this is the other thing that Ridley Scott makes very clear, and at some points in his career, he's kind of been wrong about it. I mean, Prometheus is another one to bring up, but he has the firm belief that once you get the the document right, i.e. the screenplay, the cinematic blueprint, yeah. and once you get the casting right, and he's very involved in the casting of films, the rest of the film's kind of a doddle. It's kind of much more enjoyable after that point. Once you've got those two elements right, you've got a much easier ride, and you can concentrate on all the other parts of the film that you're dealing with. And yet he's made films in which he's never had the blueprint right before he started filming. Yeah. You look yeah. at Gladiator, which is a film that was rewritten while they were actually filming it. Mm. And not just because of the unfortunate death of Oliver Reed, but this was a film that was being written day to day. Yeah. And Prometheus is another one. That was a film that was being rewrote day to day seemingly by a seven-year-old yeah <laughs> we ever looked at damon lindelof's writing it's like how the fuck did he become a screenwriter because if he delivered a spec script like that no one would fucking hire him it actually gave me a headache to read a script yeah. <laughs> i i do think he actually does some okay writing i think he, a lot of the flaws fall on his back in terms of where the film falls apart he's not good at doing endings no no he, he can't seem to land a film it's just <laughs> Just really unfortunate. Uh, yeah. Tomorrowland is another film that suffers. Exactly Probably comes from, from that. being television because television never ends. Yeah, it's just you keep this vague ending in mind yeah. and just keep on working towards nothingness. Yeah. But yeah, if you ever look at a Damon Lindelof scripts, it's just capital letters all over the place. <laughs> it's, uh, it gives you a headache to look at. Yeah, those are the principles that Ridley Scott holds very high. Yeah, and again. Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't, but I think he always strives to make it that way. Yes, and when I talk about the script being rather straightforward, I mean it in the same sense that the script to Alien was rather straightforward. It was yeah. a B-movie on paper, Yeah. yet Ridley Scott surrounded himself with actors and, and crew that elevated the film beyond its B-movie trappings, and it became this A-picture. And I think Black Rain is very much of that same ilk. Mm. On paper, it could be perceived as just another straightforward police noir film. Yeah, with a slight fish-out-of-water element. Yeah, exactly. And I think that's something that he does time and time again as a filmmaker. Most of the time, let's say. Yeah. And I think this is a good place for us to actually address what the film is actually about in terms of the culture clash. Yeah. So because this was something that was raised as a real criticism at the time by American audiences, or American critics, sorry, that the film was somewhat xenophobic. And actually, to me, it seems that the film itself is about xenophobia. Yeah, it is specifically about xenophobia. And I think that's what the American critics really didn't understand about the film. Yeah, we will get into yeah. what it is exactly that the American critics said later on when we do talk about the stats and facts. But we do need to discuss it somewhat here because it is exactly what the film is about. Yeah. But it's probably best if I just go over a brief overview of the story. Yep, so go for the it. film starts in New York and we're introduced to Nick Conklin, who's our anti-hero, I suppose. And he is a cop that's really fallen from grace. Yeah, he's on a downward spiral. Yeah, he's got a couple of cliche trappings. He's got like an ex-wife and kids to look after and things like that. It's never really drawn upon yeah. that side of it. Th those are the things that I think on the page could have been gutted out of the script. Yeah. It wouldn't have made much difference. Yeah. But um, he's involved in some sort of corruption scandal involving stolen criminal money. And at this point, it's kind of hazy as to whether he actually has been involved or not it does turn out later that he has yeah and this is kind of a turning point for his character he has a a new partner who's a young blood more purist kind of character complete opposite to him yeah and he's, he's trying Andy to garcia show him the ropes and introduce him to the realities of the job yeah and they are literally polar opposites down to their hair what they dress like their viewpoints on life 
they are really split down the middle. Let's just say Michael Douglas's hair game is on point in this film. This is actually something that they mentioned in the making of documentary. They wanted to have something that looked like they wanted to make him look like a hipster of the time they wanted to make it look like you're never quite sure to trust this guy is he cool and stylish or is he a bit dodgy that's the reason they made the mullet and also it was something that they wanted to make sure he had a distinctive hairstyle from the last two films that he'd done that have been wall street and fatal attraction but also have a hairstyle that was easy to maintain yeah so that's why they went with the kind of curly mullet thing it does date the film but it actually works for the character. It does work for the it, character, It, it yeah. does suit him. It, it yeah. does really suit the character. To be fair, it's on mullet scale, it's actually probably one of the more tasteful mullets I've seen in a film. It's, um, it's definitely no Pat a, Sharp. <laughs> it's definitely a cut above Tom Hanks and Da Vinci Code. Yeah. <laughs> Which is just one of the strangest A-lister mullets I've ever seen. Yeah. And that's not even in the 80s. No. <laughs> But yeah, he's involved in all this, and they're in a restaurant in the meatpacking district, and they witness this strange incident involving seemingly Japanese businessmen having a meeting with some Italian mob bosses, and then all of a sudden everything takes a turn for the worst when the character of Sato and some of his goons enters the scene, immediately steals a box from this guy and cuts his throat, and there's a bit of a shootout that takes place. So this really just lands on their plate really is something that they've not been involved in prior it's just something that happens and they get caught up in it all yeah what follows is they pursue this character of sato through the meatpacking district actually detain him and what happens after this point is they are tasked with escorting this criminal back to his home country of japan as this character has been extradited. And this is the springboard that sets him off into this brave new world. Yeah, and the film's really about him trying to recover this villain once he escapes his clutches. And he does escape his clutches in one of the most comedic ways, actually. Yeah. Michael Douglas simply hands him over to the wrong cops. Sato's goons just pose as cops. Yeah. Take him off his hands and run away. Yeah. Like, literally run away into a car, drive <laughs> off. It's a, like, clown car-esque moment. It's one of those first elements that brings the culture clash part into play, the whole language barrier, not understanding how things work. Yeah, and it's straight away, from straight the from the off. Yeah. He, do, he gets things wrong. You get a sense that he's completely out of his depth from the moment the plane lands. Mm. And it's almost like the character gets some sort of comeuppance because up to this point, he's kind of seen as being a cocky guy who's is involved in these illegal bike races in New York. He's got a, quite a vicious streak about him as well. He seems yeah, to, he's a seemingly quite racist character, especially when he's on the plane. And yeah, he's and kind of does... not entirely likable, so it's kind of good at this point that he does get some sort of comeuppance. Yeah, and I think that that's what some film critics aren't giving the film, and that it's presenting the character as being flawed and something of a racist. It's not celebrating that. No, it doesn't at all. It's, uh, the, the film is genuinely about him overcoming these obstacles this culture clash and realizing that there is something worth keeping about this other culture that he's come into contact with and actually there is a culture clash both ways there's xenophobia on both sides which i like about yeah. this film uh, it's one of the things that the film does really well and that michael douglas portrays very well is that this character on paper would be an awful character but in the way that they present him they don't gloss over these flaws they present him in a way that by the end of the film, he is a likable character and he has redeemed himself, but not in a really clean way. It's kind of no. much more complex than that. Yeah, and Ridley Scott does talk about that character in the commentary and specifically about that character's muddy past in America. And he draws upon the idea that 
cops, even the best cops and the most powerful people within the police force are paid pennies. Yeah. And that's what drives these individuals to become so morally confused. Yeah, because he was saying, is it possible for these kinds of characters to be corrupted? Of course it is. Yes. It's one of those things that I think Americans don't like to see, Yeah, but probably happens more often than not because of the social situation. And again, it takes an outsider to look at the situation and comment on it. Yeah, and this film is essentially about him rising up out of that. Mm. And obviously, by the end of the film, he's faced with the opportunity to carry on this downward spiral. Mm. He chooses to walk the other way and to live a more kind of morally fulfilling life. And that's through what he's learned from his time in Japan. And I, I, I like that. It's a very kind of simple character arc, but it's performed and executed very well. Mm. And the Matsumoto character, played by Ken Takakura, he provides the moral viewpoint, really, of the film. He's his moral compass yeah. in some way. And he is a character, yeah, he is the Japanese stiff stereotype, which we see in Japanese films. It's not just a stereotype that Western audiences have perceived. It's a, it's a stereotype that's embraced and very much a part of homegrown Japanese films of the mm. time. He actually does embrace a few of the American qualities as well. Yeah, in fact, Ken Takakura commented on the fact that, bearing in mind up to this point he had made over 200 films, this is the first film that he had actually smiled in. Because uh, this guy, Ken Takakura, is a massive Japanese film star. He has been in almost 400 films as of present. He was essentially the Harrison Ford is, yeah. of Japan. Mm. And I think it goes to show just this film was a big success in Japan, more so than it was in America. Yeah. And I think that's because really Scott does his research. He's a well-read individual and he's embraced this culture and he showed it in ways that sure um, Japanese films were embracing these kind of themes that he was playing with in their own films at the time mm. and Ridley Scott's just jumping into that pool and he's and he captures Japan in a really gorgeous light there are the shadows and the Yakuza elements there is a danger to the world that he is portraying mm. but that's what the film is interested with it's interested with the shadows well that's the thing though and that's the thing they comment on in the in the making of is that they are dealing with a specific element in Japanese life. And this is the thing I always get puzzled by. When films deal with the bad elements in a foreign culture, it always comes across as being racist, when really they're just dealing with that part of the culture. And not all films have to deal with the positive element in an opposing culture. No, no. And I think it's just as long as you do it justice and provide these elements in an interesting way. And I think Ridley Scott does yeah. that. I don't think there is any cynicism to the way in which he is portraying these characters. Yeah. And it's interesting as well, just to probably just to sidetrack, but even his more recent comments on the making of Exodus as regards the actual casting of that particular film. Now, this is a film that's kind of a whitewash yeah, very much but so. in commenting on why it is so, he was almost lambasting the Hollywood system at this point by saying, I wouldn't even been able to make this film if it had starred any actors who had actually come from that particular region because it just wouldn't sell. And yeah. although the film is a bit of a whitewash and is slightly flawed because of it, it's not really a comment on Ridley Scott and how he casts his films. That's why I wanted to mention that I don't think Ridley Scott is a racist because that has come out recently in regards to Exodus and especially his comments about him not being able to make this film mm. if he hadn't cast the actors that he did. I think people misinterpreted what he was saying and labelled him as being an enabler of this culture. But actually, I think he was bringing to light an issue yes. with filmmaking on an international scale at the moment. And 
really bemoaning the um, situation he was put into. Mm. Yeah, sure, he got to work with actors that he wanted to work with, like Christian Bale and Joel Egerton, actors that he'd always wanted to. But he does seem to be quite sad that he was put into a situation where he couldn't cast the type of people that he wanted or racially specific characters mm. because of issues with studios and getting the money mm. and where the money was coming from. And that is a shame. I mean, that, that highlights the fact that racism is still alive in Hollywood. Even though we're out of this age of the movie star, it's kind yeah. of an odd one. We're in this weird place where we're out of films being billed with names above the title a lot of the time and mm. being driven on star names but they're still not allowed to cast characters who are completely correct for that particular part they're not allowed to cast diversely yeah you only have to look as far as marvel to see the issues faced by um, studios when it comes to which characters that they portray and you look at their slate and there's just a wash of white male heterosexuals with very little change between them and although we're hopefully on the cusp of a change we are still waiting for that we're still waiting for that transformation yeah and ridley scott's exodus just falls in line with the rest unfortunately mm. and that dates the film that's one of the film's major flaws for me is that is the cast the cast work well but that's not the cast that that film needed no that film needed a diverse cast yeah i don't think the fault lies at ridley scott's door I do think there is something to be said about him knuckling down and getting on with it. Yeah. I mean, there's nothing I can really think of in Black Rain that really paints a negative picture on Japanese life. All he's dealing with is characters who are bad in of themselves, yeah. not just not because they're Japanese, just because they are actually bad and they're involved in gang warfare, which happens in America and in Europe and in other places too. So he's not commenting on that part of Japanese life. He's just commenting on those particular characters. And it's just a coincidence that they happen to be Japanese. Yeah, I do know that one of the criticisms that was leveled at the film was that it presents Americans as being the loose cannon stereotype and it presents the Japanese as being uptight stiffs. And I don't think that's necessarily true. No. Although there are characters that are uptight stiffs, they seem to be on both sides of the sea. You've got the uh, internal affairs in America that do seem to be uptight in the way that they are dealing with Michael Douglas's character. Yeah. But at the same time, you've got Sato, who is, who is just as much of a loose cannon as Nick is. He is a loose cannon within the criminal underworld, whereas Nick is a loose cannon within the police force. Yeah, whereas Andy Garcia is almost yuppie-ish and is a much more clear moral compass than the leading man is i mean is this film about them finding some kind of middle ground here that there are actually connections between these characters there are mm. yeah there is shared ground between them there's just simply the language barrier in a way that these are characters that can get on and can work together and are as varied as each other mm. and uh, even certain aspects of yakuza culture which may seem very outlandish are actually true this whole idea of cutting off your own fingers to provide atonement is a real thing. Yeah, this this whole honor code thing. Yeah. I know that people brought attention to it as if it was an example of a stereotype, but there is a truth to it. Mm. These events did actually take place. Yakuza mob members are often seen to be missing fingers, yeah. and this is for that reason exactly. I think apparently some of the supporting cast within the Yakuza mob of the film actually were Yakuza. <laughs> 
<laughs> so, uh, especially some of the um, goons were actually missing fingers and things like that. So I think some of them at least had been involved in Yakuza activities prior to the making of the film. Especially some of the characters that were in the elevated golfing range scene. Oh, wow, yeah. really? <laughs> mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah, it's, it's something that is well known throughout Japan. And it's something that I think the Japanese film culture is rather fascinated with. There seems to be a strong connection between Japanese film and the Yakuza. Again, I think it's well-researched in terms of the way Ridley Scott does portray these individuals, but actually I think uh, some of the issues that people raise with this aren't to do with racism, but to do with the stock nature of some of the characters on the page. Because everyone beyond Sato who's involved in the criminal underworld does have a stockness about them. Mm. It doesn't matter what culture they are from, they could be anybody. They could be Italian mobsters, for all it mattered, yeah. because it really doesn't. I do think that actually those are a few elements in the script that could have used work because it left me feeling wanting to know more about how this criminal underworld worked and I didn't get a sense of that after seeing the film. I wish I would have saw more of it um, and these characters were more defined. Yeah. I think the other thing I want to talk about is the Kate Capshaw character because I feel unfortunately she's probably one of the weaker elements of the film Yeah, but not for her but just for how she's written and incorporated in the film I think she gets a hard time especially because of her work on Indiana Jones and uh, the Temple of Doom I think that her work is really great in that film actually yeah. yeah so she shrieks probably a little bit too much but for the character she plays it really well she's supposed to be completely out of her depth and hysterical yeah in that she way. was written as a complete contrast to the Karen Allen character from Raiders and played it as written and directed to a T. I don't hold the same grudges that so many fanboys do. Um, I do actually think that she is a really solid actress. But in Black Rain, yeah, she just falls to the sidelines. Her character, I think, on the page is just there to give our leads a sense that they're not gay. Yeah, (laughs) Well, she does provide some exposition and she's a bit of connective tissue. She does provide some connections for the characters. But it's tenuous at birth. But she's not a distinct character in her own right. I think Ridley Scott tries to to create some interest around her but because I think there's not enough on the page she just does come across a bit as an afterthought like I say I just think she's there to give our characters a case of the not gays yeah genuinely though yeah (laughs) Yeah. I think that's why they added the ex-wife part of it at the beginning I think this is all part of that as well yeah because it's never drawn upon again it's a very 80s way of getting female characters into a film (laughs) yeah (laughs) yeah well it's probably a very 2010s way of doing it that we don't seem to have moved on that much with no. uh, a lot of big Hollywood writing. Unfortunately <laughs> so. It seems to be Judy Greer at the moment that oh, is God. taking up that role as being the ex-wife. I don't know why, but we can't seem to get away from talking about fucking Jurassic World. <laughs> well, she's in Ant-Man as well, so yeah. there's another one. But yeah. um, any any time we manage to pick a flaw with a film, Jurassic World's got yeah, it. I think, it's, I think the reason is because Jurassic World, for some weird reason... It's done so well, but it's plunged cinema back into the 1980s. Yeah, it feels like a bit of a relic. Yeah. It's a fossil. One thing that I do want to say that I actually like about Kate Capshaw's character is that she's never dealt with as being a damsel in distress. It never quite goes there in the story. She's too assured of herself and she's too established in this world to really be wrong-footed. I like that about the character because for a good chunk of the film, I thought that's where it was heading towards and I didn't like it. Yeah. Um, when I first watched this film, I thought that's definitely where it was going to end up. She was going to be captured. It was going to be about uh, Michael Douglas's character rescuing her. And I like mm. that it never goes there. It, it doesn't even treat it as a possible avenue. No. Because it's just so cliched. Yeah, she's a very strong, independent woman. And her situation is very interesting. I don't think it's played on enough yeah. as, as to why she's there and what she's actually doing. 
And that's probably a whole of the film in itself. Exactly, yeah. She's just very underutilized by the story itself. That's the problem with her character. But her character in itself is a very positive one. Yeah, definitely. I'd agree with that. And it actually is a nice precursor to what Ridley Scott was going to do next with Thelma and Louise. Mm, yeah. I like Kate Capshaw. Mrs. Spielberg the... to you. Yeah, Mrs. <laughs> I do wish the film had more of her. And unfortunately, it doesn't. Yeah. It's just not an interesting character. No. She's a diversion at best. Mm-hmm photographed well though yeah as, <laughs> as is the entirety of the film really scott does mention and one thing that was i was taken by watching this film and it's something we've all become a little bit more familiar with in terms of our view of japan but i was amazed by just the sheer amount of media on display and that's how Ridley scott refers to it media mm. uh, you've got all this neon signage just uh littering the frame at times and it's really quite overwhelming that all this stuff is being sold to you all at once he said he really tried to get as much of that into the frame as he could possibly just to give you a sense of how overwhelming japan is and boy is it overwhelming yeah because he was talking about how extensive it was even at the time but now how much it's grown since and it's weird to come from the viewpoint of blade runner to this yeah. in terms of how well ridley scott captured that even in an artificial way with blade runner and people thought that was an extreme at the time mm. the real thing was Is far much, more extreme much more in your face these days yeah um, and it's a real shame in a way that ridley scott will probably never film again in japan because i'd love to see what he could do with it now but it's probably never going to happen because I think he has literally stated that you'll never film in Japan again after the experience of making Black Rain. Well, maybe things have changed. Maybe. Maybe things have changed enough. Maybe the bureaucracy won't get in the way of any future endeavours he has. Yeah. I'm thinking it's maybe one of those things where he's thought maybe life's too short to get myself wrangled in that again. But that does seem, seem to be his uh, filmmaking motto at the moment. Yeah. <laughs> he only seems to take a couple of weeks off before jumping into the next film. Yeah. I have no problem with this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, me neither. Uh, yeah, some of his work these days may be flawed, but I still think he's turning in interesting work. Mm-hmm. I have a very love-hate relationship with The Counselor. Yes. For example, a lot of people hate it, and I can see why somebody would hate The Counselor. Oh, yeah. But I find it endlessly interesting. It's, it's endlessly fascinating. It kind of gets a little bit better every time you watch it. Yeah, it's, it's a very anti-Hollywood film, yeah. and it embraces that. And it's almost made to be the way that it is as mm. a fuck you. I think people were so wrong-footed, including myself, because the way it was marketed and everything, people were so wrong-footed by that film. Again, it's not a film that I love. It's a film that I love and hate in equal parts. I can see why people hate it, but I just can't stop going back to it for some yeah, you reason. you can't write it off as not being interesting. It tries to do something. Exactly. And people it say has ambitions that Ridley Scott doesn't try and that is a film in which he fucking tries and I think that argument that Ridley Scott doesn't try is bollocks because he tries and whether he succeeds or not he always tries in every single film he always tries to do something different with it you can't really pigeonhole Ridley Scott even though some people like to no and I'm wondering uh, we've talked earlier about him going through transformations in his career and obviously you've got Thelma and Louise as one you've got Gladiator as another and we talked about Prometheus as well I do wonder if we've got any more left in him he is, again, the tender age of 77. I don't like to speak of him getting towards the later years of his life, but he always seems to be so open and willing to learn and to change and to adapt. Mm. I'm wondering if we've still got any more of those big pinnacle films from him, and I think we may do. Mm. I think The Martian might be. Yeah. So we spoke earlier about how the film actually reaches its conclusion in a um, rice field in Japan, um, as all these Yakuza mob bosses are meeting to discuss what we found out to be counterfeit money plates uh, these are plates that are used to counterfeit very high quality fake currency and uh, they're about to distribute it really mm. 
But um, Sato's got in the middle of that. Yeah, he's been messing everything up, really, because he's on a bit of a power trip. He's meeting with them to atone for his sins, which he does, but he has another trick up his sleeve uh, in that he basically just wipes out <laughs> the bosses. Yeah, he's uh, <laughs> going to try and take their place. But then the Sugai character, who is the the other big head boss, he's like the, the godfather kind of figure. Yes. He has a deal with Nick to get rid of Sato as well. So uh, this is all coming into play. So you've got three parties here. You've got the Sugai party, you've got the Sato party, and then you've got Nick with Matsumoto coming in at a slightly later stage. Yeah, so Matsumoto actually becomes, as we spoke earlier, the body of the film. He becomes the person that Nick relates to most after mm. the death of his partner. And the film very much becomes about their relationship and about the understanding between each other. And they kind of jump to each other's rescue in this moment, especially Nick is the one that really needs Matsumoto's help. Yeah, because at this point, Matsumoto has been suspended as well because of the incident at the foundry where Nick has had his firearm out. Matsumoto's only there because he's embracing the kind of extremes that Nick is so eager to go to. Matsumoto in Japanese culture has reached his lowest point. It is considered very shameful to be demoted in the job or be suspended from a job. So he is at his lowest point. So he's very much aligning with Nick at this point in the film. We do get a sense that they are learning from each other. Mm. And it's not until the very end that we understand what it is that Nick's learned from Matsumoto. Mm. But yeah, this is where the film reaches its head and the action really kicks off. Mm. So we get to the point where everyone's rallying around. They have this meeting. Sato decides to cut his finger off. I'm kind of puzzled as to why he does, because he probably could have killed him before he actually cut his own finger off. But that's kind of much of a muchness. Maybe it is a code of honor thing, even down to him to do yeah. that and then do something else bad. He'll cut his other he'll cut his other finger off at a later date because of the <laughs> other thing that he's done. That's kind of that's kind of the thinking. He's kind of a real crazy character, but he still seems to abide by these codes and these honor traditions. Do you know who that character reminded me of? A lot, actually. Mm. Heath Ledger's version of the Joker. Yeah. Um, there's that kind of recklessness to him and that, uh, that embracing of chaos. Yeah, well, the other thing they were talking about, even in the making of documentary, is how much the Matrix owes to that character's look. Yes. Because <laughs> <laughs> he has a very distinctive look in the film, down to his sunglasses and his clothes and his jackets, and it's all very Neo slash Morpheus. I can see this film being a huge inspiration mm. um, in terms of the look to the Wachowskis. Even the Asian culture elements that it brings into yeah, play as well. Definitely. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, so he dispatches this Sugai character, and it all ends up being a big shootout between the two factions, and Nick and Matsumoto get caught up in the middle of it. Yeah, and soon we find Nick is on Sato's trail. There's a bike chase through the rice fields. Which is great. Yeah, it's, it's, it's very good. It looks very dangerous, in fact, yeah, as well. Apparently, it was very difficult to film because of the rain. Oh, right, yeah. They literally had 10 days to film in that location. About nine of them, they had heavy rain. Black so rain. They had a lot of situations where the bikes would flip over, and it took, like, six or seven people to move the lights because the, the, literally the stanchions and the wheels were sinking into the mud. Wow. I mean, you can tell on a couple of shots that there are stunt doubles there. You can only tell if you really look closely or mm. pause it at the right moment. But actually, there's a good few shots where it's Michael Douglas yes. on his bike. There. They used them, and it was a very worrying moment for everybody <laughs> to do that. I bet. I bet the insurance guy but it was... pays off. <laughs> yeah, I bet the insurance company were uh, shaking in their britches. Yep. So obviously, as these films do, it turns into a fist fight by the end. Mm -hmm. uh, bikes crash together, and the fist fight begins. And it's a really well-shot fist fight. I like how down and... Uh, it is is mud on the lens mm -hmm. and that normally gets on my nerves in a film there's only a couple of films that have got away with that for me the other one being children of men mm -hmm. that uses that technique really well 
but yeah, you do get a sense that you are in the fight with them as well in the yeah. way that Ridley Scott shoots it. It's not a glossy Hollywood fight. No, no, it isn't. It's very dirty. Mm. And it's here that our main character, Nick, is faced with a decision. Mm. He manages to best Sato in his fight, and he's faced with a decision of whether or not to kill this man. This man who killed his partner, who has been the source of all his animosity throughout the entire film, and he's faced with the opportunity to kill him. And we get the sense that Nick of the past would have done it without yeah. thinking. There's a big wooden spike in the ground, and he's literally hovering him over it, and he's considering when to drop him on this very sharp looking wooden spike and then he makes that decision and we cut to what the result is they did actually shoot the scene both ways because even they weren't sure they, they chose to the right down. way they did choose the they right chose way the right and way. they realized they chose the right way as well yeah sure i mean when i first watched it i remember thinking that there was um it didn't satisfy the bloodlust in me because mm. i was very much a part of that fight i was like yeah go and kill him yeah. it felt like very um like i was watching a gladiator battle or something but actually when i thought about it i was like you know what that totally fits there's, the character actually, that's the arc that's there's actually the arc. uh one bit that they cut out the film in the re-edit that they kind of regret cutting there's a bit where sato actually smiles at nick almost welcoming him to kill him he like almost like fair enough kill me it's an easy way out and he doesn't do that and it makes sato suffer and they cut that little moment out in the re-edit to make it the length oh i wish and that would have been still in the film more, it's actually a big regret of theirs that they left it out because it would have made that part marry much better like land emotionally yeah because he doesn't want to give sato that easy way out he want to make some suffer with the you know long-term imprisonment well there are a few moments where the script really books the trend for me and one of the earlier ones is although we spoke about it being script 101 um they build andy garcia's character up so well that when he dies it we feel it it's genuinely shocking yeah it, yeah it's genuinely shocking and yeah sure you will find that as an example of raising the personal stakes in like script 101 books but it's executed really well and the other one is this in another action film i could see the directors and the writers having no problem dropping that character on the spike and still treating it like a win yeah absolutely i really like how the film books a trend in that regard yeah i think a less astute filmmaker would definitely decided to go down that way yeah and just to hammer home that our character nick has changed so drastically we have got a short scene in which uh, we find out that these plates have disappeared and we get the sense that nick's taken them but matsumoto is not going to tell anyone and uh, Nick has one last gift for Matsumoto. And he, in fact, leaves him a shirt with the plates inside. Yes. Which, again, just hammers home just how much this character has changed and how much he has learned in his time in Japan. Unfortunately, it's slightly undermined by the cheesiness that ensues. It's so fucking cheesy. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, there's, we've got an air punch and everything. We have, like we have an air punch and then we have the power ballad. Oh, we do. Um, the Greg well, Orman power ballad. We have the thumbs up first. <laughs> we've got to go through this and list. We've got a thumbs up, very vigorous thumbs up. We got an air punch next, and then we've got the '80s power ballad. Yeah. I think Ridley Scott slightly recognises that he might have gone a bit too sentimental at that point, but it's only a very slight slip. Yeah, I mean, people like to say that Ridley Scott is a cold director, but at times like this, he can actually be, like you say, overly emotional, overly sentimental. I mean, there's many moments in this film that you can't say that he's a cold director. Like that whole karaoke sequence is yeah. uh, could be seen as being very out of character for him. I think he's a very measured and calm filmmaker. Mm. He's unfazed, but he's certainly not cold. I've never found him cold in the same way that Stanley Kubrick is, for example. Yeah. Which I get the feeling that Stanley Kubrick is a massive influence on Ridley Scott. Yeah. And rightfully so. Stanley Kubrick is probably in my top two or three yeah. directors. I, yeah. I can't say. It's a, it'll be the flip of a coin. But he is a cold director. Ridley Scott isn't for me. I think it's just because of certain select films that he's made that have been cold films. He's been tagged with that particular moniker. 
Mainly down to Blade Runner and Alien, really. Yeah, those are cold films. They're made to be cold. They work because they're cold, but they're certainly not emotionally uninvolving. No. Alien manages to scare the shit out of you. Blade Runner never ceases to make me feel a certain degree of sadness. Mm. Yeah, sure, you listen to his commentaries and he does come across as being very measured. But there is emotion to him. Yeah, and uh, just on a post-production front, this is a film that, and this is very rare to happen in Hollywood, was actually made longer in the editing process. There's three main cuts of this film. The assembly cut ran to about 2 hours and 40 minutes, and then obviously they went away to do the final adjustments yeah. for release to get it under two hours. And they delivered a one-hour, 50-minute cut and showed it to the producers. And they were very much in the opinion that they cut too much stuff out. There were too many good things that they removed from the film. So they actually made them go back in and put those some of those elements back in to make it about two hours, five minutes. That's actually really uncommon. I know, I remember listening to Ridley Scott and him saying that he is a very pragmatic filmmaker. He's not precious with any of the material that he's shot so anything could go in the trash and he always says he needs a very strong editor to sit there and tell him well if you put that in the trash you're gonna lose the character yeah he needs somebody to tell him that because of how quick he can be to throw something for the purpose of structure yeah i kind of wish he'd be a little bit more possessive at times because i think again going down to prometheus i think he needed one of those people to say right this is good this is bad and i think if you're so involved in it at times i think i think it's difficult for people on the outside to really get a perspective on that when you're involved in making a film it is very difficult at times to really measure what is good and what is bad when you're right in the middle of it yeah i definitely see that with prometheus and again i see it with exodus as well and I get the feeling that he always thinks oh well you know what the director's cut around the corner that's where i'll put all my work in Mm. And that's not always the case now, unfortunately, because he's working too fast. He's not got the time to really go back and revisit these films and to fix them in a way that perhaps they need fixing. Yeah, and I think sometimes it can result in hurting his reputation as well, because there are some real Ridley Scott haters out there yes. that really don't like what he does. And I think sometimes that is the result of this process that he goes through, especially in terms of Prometheus. Now, I don't think Prometheus is anywhere near as bad a film that some people like to make it out to be. It's definitely a flawed film. It's a very flawed film. I've made my own edit of the film based on some of those flaws, which I think is a much better version. It is, (laughs) by by far, actually, yeah. Yeah. And that's just a sliver of what was on the cutting room floor as well in terms of what you put back into the film. I think it's one of those things when you set such high benchmarks for yourself and your audience when you do slightly fail people coming down on you very hard it's like that Pixar thing again Yes. when you set very high standards when you do make something that is slightly flawed people come down really hard on you when there's that much expectation we saw it just over a decade ago with Kingdom of Heaven Mm. that was a film that people came very hard upon sorry Came very hard. <laughs> Sorry. Okay. Well, I know a lot of teenage girls yeah. might have done that with uh, Orlando Bloom, but <laughs> oh, flooded me britches. Oh. Yeah, and another example of that would be just over a decade ago with Kingdom of Heaven. I know that critics and audiences came down very hard on that film on its theatrical release because it had at least forty-five minutes of the film completely gutted from it. None of the characters made sense. Yeah. I went to see that film and I left the cinema feeling very cold. That was a film that didn't move me, and yet. The director's cut is a film that I think is perhaps one of the best Ridley Scott films ever made. Yeah, and that's a rare instance where Ridley Scott has admitted that he was wrong about a cut. Yes. That he'd made the wrong decision. That he let the studio do this to him. 
And unfortunately, I kind of feel that he hasn't learned his lesson. Yeah, that's the problem. I, I still do feel like he's working with the idea that, oh, we'll fix it later. Yeah, and it's funny that that's happened because when they brought that extended version of Kingdom of Heaven out, all those critics came flooding back to him. Yeah, yeah. It's now regarded as a great Ridley Scott film because of that version. Every year that and goes that by, it's version gaining is now more forgotten. fans. It's not even been released on Blu-ray. No. The one that's on Blu-ray is the extended, and that is now considered the definitive version. So it's kind of puzzling why that doesn't happen more often with him and his train of thought. Yeah, I wish you'd fight the good fight when it came down to the whip. And the other thing is that I wish he would stop working with future releases in mind, that the theatrical version he is putting out is the version that should be being put out. I'm fed up of hearing about these three hours cuts that are excellent that nobody's going to get to see for the next eight or nine years because he needs to be able to trust himself that this is the vision that needs to come out and he needs to be able to argue that. I know that he's a very studio-minded director. He knows it's a give and take making a film. But sometimes, and Exodus is another example of that, sometimes he gives too much. It does kind of puzzle me why he works with Fox so often because they keep fucking him over. Yeah, yeah. Time and time again he gets fucked over by Fox. But they keep offering him the money. Yeah, it's weird. I think it's just that, that that idea that, you know, he thinks time is short, keeps on making films, so he'll almost do these deals with the devil. Yeah. In order to keep on doing that. And I'd rather sometimes have a, a longer gap between Ridley Scott films if we get another great Ridley Scott film coming out. Yeah, definitely. But, well, yeah, they'll come out ten years later. <laughs> they'll all be all, they'll, they'll all be great Ridley Scott films that we haven't seen yet. Definitely. <laughs> um, I, th- I do think one of the things that really um, gives the film a nice Eastern feel to it the music actually uh, infuses a quite a few Eastern elements to the, yeah. to the story as well. It, it's a nice merging of Eastern and Western themes, actually. Yeah, I think that was Hans Zimmer's original intention. He didn't want to create a fake Japanese score. He wanted to really merge the two things together. So approach it from an outsider coming in, but incorporating the Japanese instruments with synthesizers and drum machines. Yeah. He, he really wanted to make sure that he wasn't creating a score that was traditional of the time, i.e. with a big orchestra. He really wanted to incorporate all these actual traditional Japanese instruments and flip it over with these drum machines and synthesizers and create something quite hard-hitting, but also intimate and tender at times as well. Yeah, it is very 80s synth in terms of um, execution, but I still think it's a great score. And actually, it includes, I would say some of the origins of his Batman work. Oh, yeah, I was literally just going to say that. Christopher Nolan. There's a couple of rising scales in this one where you really feel, yeah, this is all prototype Batman music. (laughs) Yeah, which makes sense because Christopher Nolan's version of Batman is very much an Eastern-influenced superhero. Yeah. He does have Eastern origins. It's quite interesting, actually. There's a couple of ideas in this score which he, he obviously starts. He doesn't return to for quite some time. A lot of his other work in the mid-90s doesn't really sound like this and it's only in the advent of doing stuff like Batman where you get this what for some weird reason is seen as the Hans Zimmer sound yeah. which actually only is probably only incorporated in a few of the films that he's worked on. Hans Zimmer's worked on so many films that this Hans Zimmer sound has its origins in Black Rain but doesn't come across through that many films that he's done. No, it doesn't really. There are a few like action scores that people go back to and hold up as being the Hans Zimmer sounding things. But actually, if you listen to his work on Batman Begins with James Newton Howard and then contrast that to his work on, say, Hannibal, which is very delicate and yeah. classical music based. And then you move on to Interstellar. Yeah. But even the stuff like The Lion King 
It's nothing oh, like that. Yeah, completely different. Yeah. I think people listen to a Crimson Tide type soundtrack and go, yep, that's Zimmer, and yeah. that's all he does, yeah. which is completely wrong. And then another one, The Thin Red Line, completely different oh, sound. Yeah. I really like Hans Zimmer. I think he doesn't get his due from the snobbish side of soundtrack critics. Yeah, I think he's betrayed sometimes being a bit trashy. Which is just so shit. (laughs) It's such a shit criticism. And the kinds of films he was doing at the beginning of his career were completely opposite of that. I mean, the, the film that got him the job of Black Rain was Rain Man. Ridley Scott was watching Rain Man one day, and it's a film that I know he likes quite a lot. Yeah. And, uh... He really likes the music from Rain Man. It's and a great decided score. Decided to hire him based purely on that. Literally from just watching the film and going, "Oh yeah, who's this guy? Hans Zimmer? No, never heard of him. Uh, better, <laughs> ring, better find out where, you know who represents him." <laughs> I mean, just as an aside, I did actually see Hans Zimmer live last year, I think, mm. at a concert in which he went through pretty much the entirety of his career, or at least the key pieces from his career, straight from when he started. To where he was at now he finished it just before interstellar which i was really gutted not to hear an actual sample of but just to hear him go through that entire back catalog live you really do get a sense of the different sounds that he's been working with over the mm. years and the way in which he's developed and you do get to hear some of his themes develop from early on into what they are now mm. it was very fascinating Okay, so you've heard us prattle on about our opinions of Black Rain and Ridley Scott long enough, but I don't think either of us are actually closer to understanding why the film has been forgotten. Maybe there are clues in the stats and facts. Mm -hmm. So, what does the box office have to say about Black Rain? Okay, so, Black Rain's budget was $30 million. It's quite modest for the time. It's it's an okay budget. I imagine a lot of it went to Michael Douglas and his hair team. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, Michael Douglas and the (laughs) Japanese locations, I think. Yeah, definitely. Um... Probably not on really Scott's salary at this point. Uh, <laughs> and um, the opening weekend, it made $10 million and was top of the week. Yes. On that week, yeah, which was September one. 89. It opened against Uncle Buck, which was third. Sea of Love, which was second. I've never heard that fucking film. I've never heard of Sea nope. of Love before. And Eric the Viking. I think that's another forgotten <laughs> yeah. film that we could do at some point. <laughs> and its overall domestic gross was $46 million and its worldwide gross was $134 million. So based on a $30 million budget did pretty well it wasn't a blockbuster by any means but yeah it's done well based on its budget it's done yeah. very well relative to its budget at the same time i think something has to be said for the sheer amount of money it made internationally um, oh, yeah. in comparison to what it made in america mm, yeah. it made the brunt of its profit across seas i think this is one of those films that is it's a film about americans but it's not for americans because it definitely has a more of an outsider's viewpoint it's yeah. definitely more european or even like i say it's even more european or japanese in that sense it's got those two viewpoints that are much more aligned with each other than say an american viewpoint so i think that's why americans didn't really embrace it that much yeah and i don't think that the um, american film industry had embraced japanese film culture in the same way it has now no at that time but yeah it didn't have very much competition when it came out really and uh, it did pretty well in its in its own modest way yeah think when you look at the critics reviews this is the key to understanding why this film has been so pushed aside yeah yeah actually i do have a couple of quotes from the critics as Mm -hmm. well as the rotten tomato score so let's start off with the rotten tomato score actually overall it has a 52 percent rating which is really middling for this film it's shamefully low i have seen worse films with this rating by far i think this is a film that's more along between 70 to 80 percent yeah definitely something like that 
its average score is 5.3, which again is far too low. Mm. It, it deserves a 7.5 at least. Yeah. I do think this film is slightly ahead of its time. Yeah. It was just predating that real Eastern boom in American culture. And I don't think they were just quite as ready to embrace it then. Yeah, because it's got a couple of flaws in it, but it is a solid film. Definitely. And um, I do actually have a couple of quotes here, the first of which is from uh, Roger Ebert, as per usual. Although (laughs) he was not kind to this film, he gave it two out of four, which is a middling score. And he says, this is a designer movie, all luck and no heart. And the Douglas character is curiously unsympathetic. He plays it so cold and distant that the heartfelt scenes ring false. And the colours in the movie, steel greys, gloomy blues and wet concrete, occasionally illuminated by neon signs, showers of sparks and exploding automobiles underline the general gloom. I really like Roger Ebert. Uh, That's why we keep going back to him. I don't agree with much of this. No. I don't think that the film is so visually uninteresting. Not at all. I think it's a visually gorgeous film. Yeah. (laughs) And we've got a, a variety as well. The New York scenes are shot in a way that harkens back to the French connection. Yeah, that's what he was going for. And then you've got the neon lit gorgeous views of Japan that harken back to Blade Runner. Mm-hmm. There's a variety of different images on show here. It's, mm. it's never just grey and dull. I think the thing that happened here, and he did book the trend with his next film, Thelma and Louise, is that I think at this point in, in his career, I think American critics were very much tired of this kind of Ridley Scott moody, dark film that he was making because he had made Alien, Blade Runner, Legend, Someone to Watch Over Me, and Black Rain, which are all fairly dark films in of themselves people at this time would have grown tired of this approach i think that's what's happened yeah and again i think when you take out of context it's a great film but maybe as of the time people were tiring of that format i think that's what we have to do we have to just completely divorce it from when it was made and approach it as the film that it actually is in the same way that many have blade runner Mm. although it's took many different versions of Blade Runner to really get appreciation I think that's a film as well that again suffered because of the time that it was released as well Yeah, people went to go see a Harrison Ford film expecting it to be Indiana Jones or Star Wars and what they got was this film that muses on existentialism and is emotionally devastating (laughs) yeah But I think above all, the main thing that I really disagree with is that the film is emotionally uninvolving Mm. because I really feel it when Andy Garcia gets killed. I really do feel like the film is heightened and the stakes are really personal. Yes. And I feel like there is a a wealth of emotion there. Mm. Okay. And the other rating that we have is from Empire, who gave it three out of five, Ian Nathan this time. He says, without a convincing subtext, Black Rain is a pretty dull affair indeed. And uh, one of the things that he does go into is the xenophobia, which we spoke about. He says that it doesn't really commit to its central theme about xenophobia and post-war relations between the US and Japan, or lack of them. Scott presents the Americans as being unpredictable loose cannons and the Japanese as regimented stiffs, all that are flawed in their own way. But as Ian Nathan muses, is Scott actually saying anything about these stereotypes, or is he just using them? And I disagree with what Ian Nathan's saying here because I don't think the stereotypes are as solidly drawn as he makes them yeah, out they're to not be. as clean cut as he's making out to be especially on the Japanese side like there are some stiff stock characters there but when you've got characters like Sato and even um, Matsumoto when he comes out of his shell there's none of that there and I think we only have to look as far as to how well this film did in Japan oh, it yeah. actually won awards yes I think this is critics being overly cautious Yes. As to the approach that this film is taking and not fully embracing it. Because at the time, tensions between Japan and America were still very much present. 
Yeah, I think if this film would have been released maybe five or six years later, I think it would get a different reception completely. Yeah, definitely. I think in a post-Battle Royale world, this film falls right in place. Definitely. Okay, so after all this, are we any closer to understanding why Black Rain is a forgotten film? I think we are. Yes. Again, I think it comes down to that culture clash and American critics not knowing what to make of it. Yeah, we're in a funny situation with this one. It's being branded as racist and not quite hitting the mark by all of the countries that aren't really as involved in it. And it's actually been lauded and loved by the country that it's actually talking about, which is weird. Yeah, it's very strange. Again, I I just think it's outrage for outrage's sake. Yeah, it's like making a film about the Middle East that's branded as racist in America and the USA, but it being a number one hit film in the Middle East. And winning awards for its portrayals of Middle Easterns. Again, I'm really at a bit of a loss about this one, Mm. to be honest, when it comes to the xenophobia, because to me, the film is about xenophobia and how nothing can be resolved with racism in mind. All cultures must find common ground. They must find a way to communicate. Yeah. And that's the only way that we will be able to live together. We can't just be fearful of each other because we're different cultures. And I think that's exactly what the film is about. And it's weird that a film with such an honest message has been kind of received so cynically. Mm. So I do understand why it's been forgotten, but I just don't understand where that reception is rooted, really. No, not at all. Okay, and I guess that leaves me to ask the last question of the day, which is, does Black Rain deserve a second chance at life or should it lose its head? Is it a film that's best forgotten or one of the best forgotten films? I think it's one of the best forgotten films. You can't deny the quality of the film. Like I said, it's got a couple of flaws here and there, but the film is solid in every area, technically, acting-wise, story-wise, thematically. There's so much to enjoy about this film and so many things that you can delve into and, and take things from that it absolutely deserves a rewatch and it's one of those things when we watched it for the first time we were very pleasantly surprised about yeah. how good it actually was very much so and how much it actually affected us i have to agree with you on all of your points i think that there are some issues with the script mm-hmm. and with the way that some characters are dealt with in terms of them just being stock and there to serve a very basic purpose So I would say that it doesn't deserve to lose its head, perhaps just a couple of fingers. Yep. (laughs) But it definitely deserves to be labelled as one of the best of the forgotten. There's no doubt about it in my mind. Yeah. It's not a classic Ridley Scott film. No, no. But it is on his... It's on his B list, I suppose. I'd say it's a good four out of five film. Yeah, it's a second tier film. Mm. There are many tiers below. Yeah. (laughs) Tears of rain. Yeah. (laughs) But I... um, very much enjoyed this film and everybody should give it that second chance yes definitely and that's all we have time for on today's episode of best forgotten movies be sure to like share and subscribe and you can also find us on facebook and twitter at b4 movies so please get in touch with your suggestions for possible episodes you have no excuse so join us next week when andy and i will be watching steve martin and eddie murphy struggle to make a half decent film straight from the puppet fondler himself we're watching frank oz's bowfinger So it's bye from me and guten tag from Andy. Guten tag. Thanks for listening.